Welcome to this week's Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, we had an interesting discussion uh, today with uh, Andrew McLean, who's the author of what's called uh, Backyard History. And that's a podcast. It's a blog. Uh, it's a column in 14 different newspapers across the Maritimes. And he tells interesting sort of um, anecdotes or stories about our history. And I've been following him for a while, and a lot of them have an economic angle. Uh, and so I thought I'd bring him on. And we had a really good conversation today about some stories that will be, I think, quite interesting to our listeners. Yeah, this podcast is obviously a bit of a departure from us, uh, for us, uh, you know, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, the, the past uh, has a lot of lessons that we can learn from. And we had many examples of that in our conversation with Andrew. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're, we have a pretty strong entrepreneurial past that kind of got weak over a long period of time. We, we actually had a bit of a golden age in the, in, uh, the Maritimes prior to Confederation. There's reasons why we kind of lost our, our mojo, I think. Uh, and, you know, I think Andrew concluded our conversation uh, really optimistically. When we asked him how historians of the future would view our current time, he said, you know, we are entering our golden period. And uh, I actually, uh, I couldn't agree more with them. I think uh, we're on the, on the verge of uh, some real uh, prosperity for this region, unlike we've ever had before. And it just getting, you know, these podcasts reinforces that message for us. I think we feel that way more and more. The more we hear, the more we feel optimistic about the future. So it's good to look backwards uh, and make the, and learn from the past. And, uh, you know, the stories are very interesting as well. Yes, and I think we sometimes did things maybe better in the past, and we kind of lost that learning. Uh, and sometimes if we go back, we, we, we study our history, we might learn something. And I, there was a few examples. I'll just mention the effort to attract immigration. Uh, he tells us it was very targeted. They had a 94-page handbook. Uh, they were pitching high-quality education here and trying to, trying to attract migrants that wanted their kids to, to get a high quality education. And so, uh, and he, he even told us that the, the government of New Brunswick spent 10% of its budget on education. And this was in the pre-Confederation period. So I think that's uh, a learning. And even to this day, newcomers uh, are concerned about the education of, of their children and want to make sure their, their kids get a good education. So that message continues to resonate even today. And of course, the tourism one, which is near and dear to my heart, uh, there was a gentleman in New Brunswick that actually wooed high-profile uh, U.S. celebrities to come as a way to attract tourism. And uh, one of them was was uh, Babe Ruth, but there was a lot of others. So he tells us a little bit about that story. So there's we can go back to the past and learn, you know, ways to grow your tourism sector, ways to grow your agriculture sector, you know, efforts to attract immigration, what worked. He even told us they had a housing crisis, which should be, uh, comforting to the current politicians that are struggling with housing here in New Brunswick and across the Maritimes. Yeah, you know, history has a way of uh, recycling uh, in many ways. I mean, certainly I've seen that on the political side all my, all my life. You know, there's kind of a wave of popularity of one, you know, branch of the political stripe to another, you know, goes from liberal to conservative and, it, and like you can see it over a period of times it just comes and goes right so uh, they say history repeats itself um, you know there's this conversation kind of reinforces that notion doesn't it it really does so without any further ado here's our conversation with Andrew McLean from Backyard History Andrew, before we get started talking about the history of Atlantic Canada, can you tell us about your personal history? Where were you born? Went to school? How did you end up becoming a historian and this sort of public-facing historian that we see with all of the stuff you're doing these days? Well, thanks very much for having me on the Insights podcast, David and Dawn. Um, I actually have a pretty interesting personal history even before becoming a historian. I'm from Fredericton and I live in Fredericton now, but between these two points, there was a lot of interesting stories in between. Um, I studied history at UMB, but found that doesn't lead directly into a career, so I kind of 
did what a lot of Maritimers do, and I, I set off. Um, I, I backpacked all over the world over the years, some 35 countries on five continents. I think if you totaled it up, it was like two years, two and a half years straight. I uh, worked all over North America, everything from forest researcher to a freelance campaign manager on election campaigns in five different Canadian provinces. And then finally, before the pandemic, I was doing aerial surveying, which is basically making maps from using airplanes, using lasers. And that took me all over everywhere from the Florida Keys up to Nunavut, which was awesome. I was about to head to Boston to do that. And then the border shut down three days before I was heading out. So suddenly I got a Zoom call and we all got laid off. No more Boston. And I was back home in New Brunswick. Um, so just to kind of keep sane and go back to the historian roots, I just started looking into old New Brunswick stories and started trying to tell these um, in the sort of classic maritime storytelling way that my grandfather used to up on the North Shore, but also kind of mixing this with my own academic background of, um, you know, going deep dives, finding actual quotes and stuff like that. And there was no plans whatsoever. I just started writing these things up, quite long things too, posted them online, and they just instantly took off, just like, boom, viral sensations from the very start. There wasn't any struggle or time to hone a craft, just exploded in popularity. Got a call from a newspaper that I used to deliver as a boy, that my first job, paper boy, and they just called me up and were like, hey, love these things you're doing online. Can we pay you to do this? And it was like, well, that was easy. Um, so now I'm in like 12 or 14 newspapers a week across the Maritimes. There's a Backyard History podcast, which I think um, David said he's a fan of. Uh, that's an endorsement. We're counting that as an endorsement. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a, a forthcoming book and there's actually a Backyard History TV show in the works. So that turned out well. <laughs> wow. So uh, this is all over a fairly short period of time, right? Uh, you, you said it started uh, during the pandemic. You started doing the, these... Uh, these uh, releases of uh, historical background things. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, we haven't even hit my three-year anniversary yet. So it's been oh. um, taking off quite quickly, really. So do you, are, can you track uh, your readership and, and the number of people listening to your podcast? Can you give us an idea of the reach of, uh, of your backyard uh, history column that, that you have? Um, numbers are kind of, well, as you guys know, numbers are sort of hard to track between listeners and downloads and stuff like that. But the interesting thing I found is that you mentioned the word reach, like it'll take off in strange, especially the podcast. Like there's a, a sizable amount of listeners in Brazil of all places. I mean, obviously there's Canada and the United States. We'd expect that, but there's no Brazilian content at all. So it's just kind of interesting that the stories that our stories, our maritime stories on standing on their own, really make an impact on people regardless of their connection with our actual places, just standing on their own merits as stories. And I love that. Yeah. We just found out uh, not that long ago that uh, we had people from uh, over 100 countries who had listened to our podcast today. That kind of surprised us uh, and, uh, you know, kind of hard to figure that one out. But I guess people will uh, will tune in from anywhere, basically. Yeah. Uh, now, most people have heard about the Codfathers. In fact, we've had a number of them on our podcast, but uh, uh, you tell stories of successful business people from an earlier age. I think these are really uh, instructive uh, uh, for, for today's generation. Can you give us a couple of examples of entrepreneurs that really stood out in the past, but maybe not as rec recognized widely today as they maybe should be? Um, yeah, uh, there's there's certainly a lot of, of big names that have been made in the Maritimes here, all these local success stories, and, and they should be applauded. But you use the word entrepreneurs, which is kind of one that um, it's, it's a bit broader than just these mega success stories. And I kind of like to focus in on smaller, lesser known people. Um, so I like one, like there's this young woman in the late 1800s named Catherine Ryan from Johnville, New Brunswick, which I doubt many people have heard of then or today. But she happened to be in British Columbia when the Klondike Gold Rush was discovered in the Yukon. She made her way up there first, and she discovered in these hungry miners an entrepreneurial opportunity and set up a little tent restaurant called Ryan's, and that evolved into her having um, managing several hotels and becoming actually the first woman RCMP officer in Canada um, in both Dawson City and Whitehorse, and she became known as Klondike Kate. Um, another one would be um, a Georgiana Wetzel, uh, another 
seemingly forgotten name. She was a black widowed single mother in St. John in the late 1800s, and she set up an extremely successful ice selling business. So that means like cutting blocks of ice and having teams of staff people deliver them to keep people's cold uh, food cold in the era before refrigerators. And she had several warehouses all over. She had all these teams of men uh, working for her. And she was heralded by a Boston newspaper as the wealthiest black woman in North America. And uh, even like smaller people, there's uh, the tale of the Dark Harbor Hermits. There are these two, well, well they're, they're hermits from Dark Harbor in Grand Manan. And they sort of became successful um, as a result of American tourists coming up and getting interested in their stories, their songs, and their artwork. And they became something of quite a sensation for these these little things in um, in New York City, Boston, all these massive places. They Even they kind of knew how to... Um, spin these stories in a homecoming way. And um, I think that we see a lot of this, of people digging into what we have here and trying to promote who we are. Um, I like the story of Doug Black. He was a newspaper editor for The Daily Gleaner. Um, and in his off time, he started promoting New Brunswick tourism. Um, it wasn't a job. It was just something he did. He would be reaching out to celebrities in the 1920s and newspaper editors, car manufacturers to try and bring people in here. And it was super successful. We've had celebrities like Babe Ruth and stuff like that. And then they promote it. And New Brunswick isn't thought of as perhaps the biggest tourism hotspot in Canada now. But back in the 20s, it was at the absolute peak of these things. And I think that there's stories there that we can learn from, right, that our, our respective listeners can of things that worked in the past for us as we move forward. Yeah, that story is very interesting, uh, Don, this uh, uh, idea of bringing high-profile celebrities from the U.S. as tourists here, and they came. I, I remember reading this one, Andrew, uh, and then other people would come because, wow, if that's the place where Babe Ruth would go. So I think I think that sort of celebrity tourism focus is something that's been lost. You don't hear about that as much anymore, but that's a very interesting learning from the past. I also liked your one about the Troop family, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I thought that was very interesting because this was, you called it New Brunswick's wealthiest shipbuilding family back in the 1840s, 1850s, but they've completely disappeared, even though they tried a lot of different entrepreneurial ventures. Can you give us a, you remember a little bit of a history of, of the Troop family? Um, yeah, they were, oh, we had, so this would have been during um, an era that some people have called New Brunswick's golden era, the 18. 30s to the 1850s. There was a huge influx of immigrants to the Maritimes. It was just a absolute den of um, positive economic growth going on. And uh, the Troop family were at the forefront of that. They had um, not only the shipbuilding, which they became known for, but uh, hotel businesses. They got into the railway things and stuff like that. Um, and they continued on for a couple generations. Um, I guess to kind of make a long and complicated story short, it seems like um, as this era was coming to an end, in which people saw um, the construction of wooden ships as being um, overshadowed by the construction of large iron ships, especially in Scotland. Um, and people saw this coming, but they seemed to have a real problem, um, what's the word, pivoting economically. So the Troop family did try to make other ventures, but at the same time, they were making a lot of investments in even larger wooden sailing ships. And this is at a point where they'd economically overstretched themselves already. And it wasn't really anything, I think the final end wasn't really their fault. They'd invested in these large ships. It was a gamble, but they just got struck by a few different natural disasters, really. I don't think there's any other way. Like, you know, you lose a couple of ships in an era when insurance isn't isn't the best, and suddenly you're, you're caught on the back foot in a changing time. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, a bit unfortunate, but they were definitely a, a huge name in St. John for a long time. And now all that's left is a street named after them. I wanted to ask you about immigration. Don and I have a theory that, that the pre-Confederation was a golden era for this region. I don't know if we're just looking at that through gold... Uh, gold-rimmed historical glasses, but can you tell us about the last time we saw a large uh, influx of immigration to the maritime provinces? Um, yeah, so I guess you're talking about like the latest wave of immigration, which is definitely a huge positive thing. Um, but like waves of immigrants coming to the maritimes is kind of just fundamentally the story of our region. Um, we all know well-known waves like the Loyalists, but I think that the era 
the, what you're referring to is from about the 1830s to the 1850s. Um, and it, things changed so much. I found this one newspaper article. It was, it was a Christmas article, and this was written in the early 1860s. And it was basically like one of my backyard history articles with its author trying to explain to its readers what a time bygone was like, what average life was like during a Christmas but he's talking about a time just before the wave of immigration. So this is 40 years ago. Like this would be talking about if I was trying to do like a deep dive, like what was the 1980s like, right? But life had changed so dramatically in that small period of time that people didn't even recognize what it was like. Um, and that was because of this massive wave of immigration. And people came from all over, but um, Ireland was a big one. Um, England, Scotland, Scandinavian countries, Germany, and there were people from all these different religions, races, and there, there were some divisions. Um, there were some issues, uh, housing shortages, which is, I think, we're one more familiar with today, but that was one at the time as well. Um, most people came simply seeking economic opportunities. Um, this was the time of shipbuilding. This was the heyday of the lumberjacks, the logging camps. Um, and one thing that's really interesting about this is that I think I think we kind of we just mentioned the troop family in St. John, and we know that these big cities, Halifax and St. John, were these huge centers of shipbuilding, right? But what your listeners might not know is that shipbuilding was a huge industry even in small towns. Like for example, St. Martin's of all places, not a big city then, not a big city now. Uh, it was a, a big shipbuilding center. And actually all those little New Brunswick towns on the Bay of Fundy whose names start with Saint were all um, shipbuilding towns. Nova Scotia, we had Yarmouth, Pictou, Anaganish, Lunenburg, all of these places were um, building ships. Even Fredericton and Oromocto, which are not on the coast, would even build smaller ships. So um, I think that one of the aspects that we have to think of that led to this prosperity is this wasn't centralized. There were a lot of small owners and small companies building ships um, or, or using, I guess to use a modern word, contractors. Um, we would have smaller wood mills and smaller logging camps with sometimes just a dozen or 14 workers. Um, all, a lot of these dockyards were also smaller with about the same amount of employees, but there were so many of them. So um, it seems like there's we have a bit of a past of looking for one one thing that's going to like save the Maritimes. I think you've heard this. Maybe not now where we're doing better, but certainly in the 90s. But the thing is that when we were at our most successful, it really seems that it was not a story of a big, a few big entrepreneurs, for my understanding of it at least, but it was a a tale of many people making more modest amounts of money, but by being still by any measure at all successful. Uh, one, another thing about immigration I should mention that's really cool, um, New Brunswick was one of the first places to actually try and um, pull in immigrants in a more organized way. So towards the end of this, the people started moving more out west, but New Brunswick, before Confederation, put together what it called the Handbook of Information for Immigrants to New Brunswick by a man named Moses Purley in 1857, so before there was a Canada. And it was trying to, it was explaining, I think it's 94 pages long, it was distributed all over England and Ireland to prospective immigrants to lure them in, and it included really layperson type advice that you, you kind of forget about. Like one thing I really loved was it explained, they're like, oh, this is going to be kind of a odd thing, but this is how people do it in, in New Brunswick. And they, instead of putting sugar in your tea, they would put in the maple sap, not maple syrup, the sap. And they're like, oh, it's, it's not that bad. It adds a bit of flavor to the coffee and tea. Um, he gave advice on, on forests, seasons, winters, foods. But one of the things that stood out the most for me um, was that it really put an emphasis on attracting these immigrants through education, education for their children. Um, there was a lot of focus on the schools of New Brunswick. They were really talking about how much money. They put it into straight up dollars and cents. They're like, you should move here because we've invested a lot of money in our schools, pay our teachers good wages. Um, and, you know, you're they call it the blessing of education. You're, you should move here. No matter how rural in the province, your children would get the best education. They bragged. I haven't been able to verify this, but they bragged that they spent more money per capita than anywhere else. And they did put a number down to that. It was fully 10% of the 
um, provincial budget, or the, I guess, colonial budget it would be at the time, 10% of it went into education, which was pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, so I guess it hasn't changed. People always love their kids and want the best for them. But I guess from a time that far away, maybe we don't think of that as a motivation, but um, the people trying to lure these immigrants to New Brunswick definitely thought of this as a major motivating factor. One of the interesting things I think that you've written about, Andrew, is the Jewish uh, migration to St. John in the late 19th century. Uh, you know, uh, can you tell us a little background about, you know, why they came, you know, what they did when they, when they arrived and uh, why that community has uh, kind of disappeared since? Um, so the, the largest St. John, uh, the largest Jewish community in, actually, um, before Canada was Canada, um, right at the time when Canada formed, out of all the places that would become Canada, the third largest Jewish community was in St. John, New Brunswick. Um, I think the first ever Jewish person to come to St. John was named David Gable. Um, he arrived in 1783 um, during the American Revolution. He was a loyalist, and he built a, a bakery on right on King Square. But the Mass immigration really came during this wave we were just talking about from the 1830s to the 1850s. Um, I think one of the main figures was named Solomon Hart and his family and other families, and they, they built a real sense of community. Um, uh, they, I think my understanding is they were mostly economic immigrants. Um, well, I guess lots of the immigrants were economic immigrants, but they saw it as a, a business-friendly place, especially in St. John, to, um, I guess, make, make money. Um, and they got involved, like we talked about, with the Troop family, several different industries. Shipbuilding was a major one. Um, I think leather tanning was another one. Um, textiles. Uh, yeah, all sorts of, of different areas. And this community kept growing. Uh, it was a tight-knit community, but it kept growing right up until the 1960s when it peaked. And then it began a decline, which you said, well, it's not not that significant any well of course it's significant but it's not that large in numbers compared to what it used to be um there isn't really any dramatic story or or, or even a unique story but what happened though um it's a tale that we're all too familiar with here in the maritimes where younger generations are simply moving away for um, better and more lucrative opportunities elsewhere and it's an old story and one that we're unfortunately used to but i think it's a really exciting thing that this seems to be changing recently, right? Where we seem to have a more robust and muscular optimism here in the Maritimes about the future. Another uh, topic that we want to talk about was prohibition, which I think is actually was good for the Maritimes. It created the opportunity for entrepreneurs. And uh, actually there's some families uh, that are still benefiting from that period, I think. Can you tell us about, about some of those entrepreneurs and, and, and maybe, uh, Kind of where did they get their liquor, first of all? And uh, yeah, a little bit about that would be interesting. Um, yeah, so the, yeah, Prohibition is definitely my favorite time in Maritime's history. Uh, I think it was up to me, and I would just be doing Prohibition stories all the time. It was just so exciting. Um, and it is it was very much an entrepreneur type thing. Like you picked the word there. It's absolutely bang on the nose. And you could think of it mostly as an import-export business. So this booze was coming from, from Europe on these huge tankers. Um, and it was going to the States. And the huge tankers were coming to the Maritimes because the United States was very serious about prohibition, although their people were drinking it. The government definitely wanted to stop it. They literally armed their navy and told them to shoot these European vessels out of the water. So the European vessels would just basically come up to the Maritimes and they more or less just sit in the water offshore outside of the limit in international waters and just wait for local people to come and offload things, which is exactly what happened. Um, the 1920s, when Prohibition was in place, was a time of incredible technological advances and prosperity all over North America. Um, basically, if you time traveled back to the 1920s, things would be at least recognizable in terms of consumer goods like cars, fridges, stoves, washing machines, electricity, um, even modern celebrity culture, for better or for worse, you'd recognize. But if you went even just a decade before, all of these things wouldn't be there. Um, but the problem is, in the Maritimes, we were really left behind from all this national prosperity. Um, 
the, the short version is that the primary resource sector focused on farming, fishing, lumber, um, there were a lot of technological advances in these industries and the cost of the goods fell, which happens, right? And this created massive hardship for many um, employees and, and owners. Um, <clears throat> so there were all sorts of different results of this. There was um, quite an uprising of national sentiment in terms of the Maritimes right movement, but also people turned, you know, people didn't have money and they turned to a new economic driver, which would be um, just smuggling booze. Um, so a lot of them were basically, we didn't really have the same levels of the mob that gets so much talk. There wasn't like an Al Capone or like uh, the figures of that scale. A lot of these people were individual smugglers, lay fishermen, uh, farmers that are hard up on their time that were smuggling these booze out on their own. I mean, we did have some big mob bosses. Um, the most exciting one, I think, called himself Joe Walnut. His name was Albini J. Violette. The Violette, you mentioned the Violette family. They own several car dealerships. They're still doing pretty well, but uh, Joe Walnut would have been the first one. Um, he had the, what he called the Madawaska mob out of St. Leonard, New Brunswick, and they controlled a, a decent portion of the booze smuggling into New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Maine, New England. Um, yeah, I can. Get, I, there's a cop that gave a really outstanding description. I'm going to read this to you of Joe Walnut. He was <clears throat> tall and slim, agile as a cat, dark featured with thin, cruel lips. His eyes were black as coal, yet slightly protruding, with white bloodshot from constant drinking. He had a fiendish temper and few scruples. It was said that he could jump in the air and kick a man in the face with both feet before the first foot touched the ground again. So this is why I love it, just the dramatic imagery and stuff like that. But the thing is, a lot of the smugglers were less dramatic than that, and honestly, they were just entrepreneurs. They were down on their luck fishermen, or honestly, just anyone who had access to a boat. And they would go to these freighters, collect a load of liquor, and transport it. The fishermen would often bring the booze to the shore, and then it would be driven by mostly farmers overland through New Brunswick and Nova Scotia to the border and across it. And um, an interesting thing is what they spent their money on, too. Um, there's, there's lots of uh, quotes about an unusual amount of fancy new consumer goods appearing in the cities as the result of this. People, when, they, when you brought your load of liquor to the States, you didn't come back empty-handed, right? You would bring back these radios, these all these consumer goods. But the thing is, for a lot of these farmers, especially in Kent County, right on the coast, they would spend their money on things that we take for granted, like in particular toilets. The, there was RCMP reports that are kind of trying to track new septic systems and toilets going into these houses, because like, as hard scrabble farmers, they shouldn't have been able to afford these, but this is the kind of priorities that they're spending their money on. So I think it's less a tale of the super exciting mobsters and, you know, the American style thing, but as as entrepreneurs, small entrepreneurs, having to break the law, but making money to do the things they absolutely need. Well, it's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, you think of maybe cars and other maybe furs as 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 signs of uh, ill-gotten wealth. I never thought a toilet would be a sign <laughs> of ill-gotten wealth, but in Kent County, where I actually live these days, uh, maybe maybe that's a, maybe that's a, that's a good sign of wealth having a, a nice crown to do your business on. Anyway, uh, Don and I are focused on new industries and we're, we're talking to a lot of groups about what is emerging in Atlantic Canada, what types of industries will power our prosperity into the future. And speaking of power, you wrote a very interesting uh, piece about something called Electric City in Nova Scotia. So I'd be very interested in you telling our listeners, what was Electric City? When did it happen? Why did it happen? What was its purpose? And again, what eventually happened so that it, it, it disappeared and now it's just kind of a historical artifact? Yeah, the Electric City Nova Scotia is a pretty exciting story. Um, I actually stumbled across that one by accident. I was off in the woods around Yarmouth area. I managed to get totally lost, followed some logging roads and came across the ruins of what was a city. Obviously, you have to look into that more. So what happened there was there was a wealthy family from France in the 1870, uh, France and Germany were off at one of their usual wars, and the family fled to a new peaceful land. 
Um, they invested their wealth in building what they called La Nouvelle France, but everyone called the Electric City because they put in, um, it was the first place in Atlantic Canada, I'm pretty sure, that had actual electricity. It was just being run off of local mills on streams. Um, but the thing that made it pretty interesting is that instead of being like a, a top-down kind of business model, they really empowered their workers to come up with their own ideas. Like even the idea of having the electricity generated through small mills on their streams and running these wires in was quite something. But a particular one amongst some of these workers was the idea of a, a train that was running on wooden rails. Um, they had some local Acadian lumberjacks who came up with that idea, which honestly sounds kind of preposterous, but it did end up working. Um, and so they just became a very open, there was, you know, religious conflicts and different things like that, but they were known to accept everyone, whether regardless of your race, your religion, there were um, French people, English people, um, indigenous people. And um, yeah, it, it was a real success story. And then ironically, considering why the Stahelan family had originally come over, which was to escape war, um, the Electric City's downfall was brought about by another war, the First World War. Um, remember, the family was from France, and the French government um, declared that if anyone, any French nationals, French citizens, didn't come home for the draft, whenever they did come home, they would be shot. Or, yeah, they would be shot. Um, so the Stahelan family themselves, all of their, I think it was eight sons or something like that, went went back. Um Many of them were actually killed in the war. Um, during that time, the, a lot of other people were drafted too by different nationalities, including Canada. And the electric city kind of fell into disrepair. And now it's it's basically completely overgrown. You kind of have to look closely to see the ruins of this. There's like full trees growing in what was once houses and town halls. Um, and we're not talking about small little saplings either. Like it's a, so it's a fascinating little tidbit of history and kind of a question of like what could have been. But uh, yeah, it's mm. a bit of a sad story. So, so can you remind me again where that where that physically is, where it uh, was? It's really not close to much of anything. It would be close. Um, yeah, on on the it's in Nova Scotia. I guess Yarmouth would be the closest center of anything. But I think you're looking at a couple of hours away if you kind of go north along there. But it's in the woods. It wasn't on the coast, which is why they had their little wooden railway and stuff like that. So okay. Uh, Andrew, at one point, the Maritimes had a large mining sector, particularly in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Uh, I wonder if you can give our listeners some examples uh, from history of uh, some of those mines. Um, yeah, mining's a, a bit of a strange one. Um, so here's a little known fact. Minto, New Brunswick, was actually one of, and almost, almost certainly probably the first place to have mining in North America. Um, the coal there is unusually close to the surface, so as soon as the very first French settlers arrived, the Wilstaquay people realized these new arrivals would pay quite well if they just kind of picked this loose coal up off the ground and brought it to them. Um, once this obvious surface coal was exhausted, actual mining needed to start. And then it sort of became clear almost immediately it was actually cheaper to import coal all the way from Europe than to start these new mines. And I think this is kind of the tale of mining in the Maritimes. Um, it's just one of missed opportunities sort of like that. Um, and I think I think this even kind of holds true even during the great heyday of mining in the Maritimes. I think that we sort of shot ourselves in the foot on a kind of a question of what could have been. Um, so outside of New Brunswick, I actually, I'll tell you about this one. I just finished up the story. We haven't released it yet, but um, I had a great story about a mining ghost town in Cape Breton called Broughton. So in the early 1900s, this great coal seam was found in, in central Cape Breton. A pile of wealthy investors in England dumped a huge amount of money into the idea of building an entire purpose-built planned town from scratch way out in the woods of Cape Breton for the miners to work in these new mines. And they started laying out streets. They were building structures. We're talking about like good quality housing for workers. There were even luxury hotels built in the woods of Cape Breton, there's one hotel that had the first ever revolving door in anywhere east of Montreal. Like, we're talking, like, just 
just luxury, straight out in the woods. Um, this town called Broughton was supposed to house some 12,000 people, which would have made it the second biggest city in Nova Scotia. Um, so the city was built, but the mines weren't in a strange choice of priorities. Um, and then there were other problems that were happening. There were all these rival mining companies nearby that began buying up strips of land between Broughton and both the two port cities that were nearby of, of Sydney and Lewisburg. So that's where you would have needed to put the two export terminals for Broughton coal to be actually shipped out of. And this eventually brought the um, brought a halt to this construction to the <clears throat> to the necessary construction of the railway. So, but the thing is, that's frustrating is there was no economic or competitive reason for this. We're talking this is the early 1900s. The world ran on coal. The appetite for this stuff was literally endless. Anything that was mined could be sold anywhere in America or Europe, no problem. It wouldn't have affected prices. And um, there was already such a massive flow of workers into Cape Breton, it was really unlikely to cause an increase in wages either for employers. And then um, the Broughton investors, um, they appealed to the Nova Scotian government for help with the railway problem, and they refused. And then um, I mentioned short-sightedness, but the final nail in the coffin also came from the government. The Broughton project ran out of money. Um, just as the coal, they finally got their coal flowing, and it ran out of money, and they asked for a relatively small, considering the investment, loan of $5,000 to finally get themselves up and running. And the Nova Scotian government refused, and Broughton was abandoned. So just like the Electric City, that was a, another kind of story of what could have been. And, and once again, out in the woods of Cape Breton. If you go along there, you can find the ruins of what was once a fully planned out, laid out city. Um, the impressive ruins of that hotel, the Grand Hotel with the revolving door, are still visible. And um, yeah, it was, it was left to rot, like literally left to rot in the woods of Cape Breton. The roots of Cape Breton angst towards Halifax started a long time ago, Don. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, they, they were so hard feelings at the time and today. <laughs> yeah, they run deep. Um, I want to just talk about the historic importance of agriculture. Uh, you've written uh, uh, about the apple industry and 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 a you know character known as the radical gardener. Tell us about that story. I love the story about the apple industry because it's a, it's a homegrown story. Excuse the terrible pun there, but it was a homegrown story. So um, today, the Maritimes were just like a, an apple growing superpower, right? But back in the beginning, our apples were just bad. I don't think there's any other way to say that. They were not good for eating, that is. But people would grow them anyways. Why? Because they were made for alcohol. They could be turned into cider. You could ferment them and drink them, but you wouldn't eat them, especially if you were sober. Um, the huge name and how this changed was a man named Francis Peabody Sharp. Uh, he was from Woodstock, New Brunswick, grew up in the 1800s. His family were some of the first settlers in Woodstock, and he grew up on an apple orchard, third generation apple orchard. So it was pretty, pretty impressive, but they were pretty bad apples. I don't even think they were used for booze. I think they were used for vinegar. Like we're talking about like lower end apples. Um, and when he was a kid, he and his siblings were assigned apple trees to take care of, and they would compete for the best trees. So Francis Peabody Sharp, he taught himself all of this. There's no formal education, but he took to what was called top grafting, which means if you kind of like cut um, a wound into an apple tree and kind of I guess kind of tie on, we're going to upset some apple orchard people here with my lack of exact knowledge, but <clears throat> another branch, a cutting from another tree can be grown onto an existing apple tree. So he would be doing this top grafting, which meant cutting a branch and putting it onto another one. And he would order these grafts to Woodstock, New Brunswick from all over New England and further away in America and then even far away places like Russia, of all things. And his experiments turned out well, but one turned out really well. And it's, it's kind of funny because this guy wasn't a scientist and he didn't use the scientific method. He was just kind of throwing branches on trees and he didn't actually track where the branches came from. So he had one spectacular hit apple tree and he didn't know where it came from. So this one branch on this one tree started being stolen, the apples on it, by local kids to eat, not to drink. And this one became sort of his 
his huge hit. He called it Sharp's New Brunswick Apple. He later shortened the name to the New Brunswicker. And this particular apple became a huge hit, led to his led to a friggin' continent-wide apple empire. Um, so they would have, you know, orchards all over the place, would be shipping these things far and wide through America. And the thing with Francis Peabody Sharp, though, is that he stayed true to his idiosyncratic ways, even though he became quite wealthy. Um, and all these American, European, and even Russian institutions tried to lure him away for his money and promises of prestige. He wanted to stay at home with his beloved orchards, and he would turn down award opportunities and stuff. But um, I think, yeah, he's uh, quite the character. And then the radical gardener, which you mentioned, is this guy, but the total opposite. So Francis Peabody Sharp was a capitalist mega success story. And the Radical Gardener was... Actually, in the end, he did pretty well for himself, financially speaking, too. But that wasn't his goal. Um, the Radical Gardener's real name was Roscoe Fillmore, and he was a communist. Uh, this was, like, during the Red Scare days, the First World War, um, when being an outspoken and aggressive communist didn't make you many friends or get you many jobs. And he was from Sussex, New Brunswick, where, like, there's not any... It's not exactly a hotbed of communist sentiment, right? But the thing is, he was uniquely talented with plants, just like the last guy we looked at. He could grow anything, despite being like an actual, literal communist. One of the founders of the Communist Party of Canada, in fact, he was hired up by the provincial government and put in charge of all of their orchards and experimental farms. But he was his hire was with the communism thing. After the Soviet Union started, he quit his good job, traveled all the way to Siberia to help re reform that country's backwards agricultural sector. He did fantastic work with his uh, his green thumbs and the crop yields he grew grew exponentially. But he <clears throat> um, let's just say that his experience with real life Soviet Union was and specifically how it treated its workers was a little bit different from communism in his books of theory. Um, he returned home to Canada, but he didn't. He never really like, quite gave up on on communism, but. Maybe let's just say he got a bit quieter about it and focused on the gardening instead of the politics. Um, he bought an apple orchard in Nova Scotia. It was successful. Not, not as successful as Francis Peabody Sharp, but he was doing well. But um, he, when he really broke out was later in his life as a lovable figure that some of your older listeners might remember from his sets of ultra-popular gardening books and a, a national cross-Canadian radio show called Mr. Green Thumbs. So this, he was a, a kindly grandfather figure wearing these rumpled cardigans talking about his beloved plants, and a few of his listeners knew about his, his past, his radical past. <laughs> so my grandfather in the 30s and 40s actually grafted, he did the same thing. My mother told me that, and I didn't even know that was possible, that he would order away for specific varieties of apple, and they'd come, and he'd, he'd just tack them on to an existing apple tree, somehow grafted on, like you say, cut a little piece away and then tie it on, and along would come a, a unique blend of whatever the original apple tree was and this, this new, this new uh, variety that, uh, that he had uh, went away from. And, and I don't know that we're as innovative in our agricultural sector, Don, these days, uh, as they might have been back then, maybe we've lost a little bit of that innovation in, in our in our agricultural sector. But I'm not sure. There's some interesting things going on in blueberries and elsewhere. I wanted to ask you about climate change because you did write uh, a, a nice piece on the Saxby Gale, uh, which happened, I think, roughly 150 years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about that event, the Saxby Gale, across the Maritimes, and why was it even called the Saxby Gale? So when did it happen? What was it, and, and uh, why was it called Sax Saxby Gale? Yeah, so the Saxby Gale was <clears throat> um, a really unusual uh, weather event. It was um, still to this day one of the worst storms. I think it was the worst storm in, ever to hit the Maritimes. But the thing that made this really strange is that from a full year before it hit, there was this eccentric fellow in Britain named Stephen Martin Saxby, who was warning, he's going to the newspapers, scientific publications, warning people that on this specific day, at this specific hour, 7 a.m., there would be a, the, uh, the biggest storm to hit the eastern seaboard. 
and everyone really dismissed him like a crank. And he was talking about how he invented a new weather predicting system called the, the Saxby system that was able to tell storms based on, on the moon. And everyone made fun of him. And then sure enough, at the exact hour, I think he was off by two hours or something, but basically when he predicted a year before this huge storm hit and uh, he, well, it was, it was devastating. It um, destroyed uh, farmlands, crashed right through dikes, destroyed new railways, um, roads, bridges, uh, fishing boats were washed up on land. It was just a, a disaster. Um, this was in 1967 or, or sorry, 1867 or 1868. So like right after Confederation, and Maritimers weren't quite sold on this Confederation thing, but um, this storm had the kind of, I guess, mollifying effect because the um, the other regions that the Maritimes had been you know, forced to be a part of, um, Quebec and Ontario, they really uh, stood up. They sent enormous amounts of aid, they funded huge amounts of reconstruction of these roads and bridges, and it really kind of brought the country together at a time when tensions were really high. Um, but in the end, there was no Saxby system. This guy had, it must have been just the luckiest fluke in history and his predictions. Um, it was actually, it wasn't even just one storm. It was just a, two hurricanes happened to hit one another out of the sea and just crash right into the Maritimes all at once. It was just a, a complete freak. There's his way of predicting storms based on the moon. It's not a real thing. <laughs> um, but just to talk about climate change, though, there's, I have a, I did a better story that kind of talks about that one. Um, the year 1816, they called it the year without a summer. Um, it happened because of a massive earthquake on the way off on the other side of the world, Indonesia, and sent so much smoke into the atmosphere that it kind of blocked out the sun. And there was indeed no, there was a year without a summer. Like they were talking about, we had right here in the Maritimes, we had snow in July, uh, frost in August. It just destroyed a lot of farmlands. And it wasn't just here, but all over. There was crop failures in, in Europe, Asia, all because of this. But when I was researching this, going through old newspapers from way back in 1816, one of the fascinating things I found was that there were actually quotes in these papers saying that that some of the older people had been noticing that the weather had been changing even during their lifetimes. And that people were actually, these are right here in like our Fredericton, our St. John newspapers were saying that like perhaps the role of all these new factories and, and coal in particular might have something to do with this. So I was blown away. I didn't, I wasn't aware that people thought of that, especially on, you know, the back edge of the empire. But um, yeah, in, we actually had a bit of a happier ending to the year without a summer than most places, um, mostly because of the one indigenous foodstuff that the settlers actually decided that they liked, um, which would be corn. So the corn was a bit hardier than the wheat and stuff like that. And the corn actually did manage to ripen. And while other places encountered really severe starvations right here in the Maritimes because of our, our love of this one particular food stuff, we had a lot of hardships. We got away much, much easier than even our, even our friends down in New England. Hmm. My dad used to talk about snow in July. I thought he was just making it up, but maybe it was this year with no summer. Because I don't recall in my lifetime ever having full-born snow in 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 July. You talked earlier about Babe Ruth coming uh, and this sort of ter tourism focus to try and attract famous people. I think a lot of Maritimers and Atlantic Canadians don't realize that we've over the years we've actually attracted a lot of, particularly historically, a lot of very famous people. We had the Pugwash Conference, of course, in Pugwash, which was after the Second World War and meant to meant to address nuclear energy and some of these big challenges. That was done in Pugwash. Of course, it moved from Pugwash after that. But we also had, if you think about St. Andrews and these places, there were a lot of very famous people that bought houses there to escape the hot of the New York summer. And after air conditioning, we kind of lost a lot of those folks. But you write a lot about famous people coming to our region. And I think that alone is a good reason to, to, to pick up on backyard history for our listeners. But can you give us an example of a few famous folks that have come through our region uh, over the years and some of the, the, the way they left their mark on our region? Um, yeah, sure. Um, like you said, there's, there's loads of um, fascinating figures. You mentioned Babe Ruth. Um, he was, man, that guy was there like just constantly. It seemed like I was a, 
He would swing by quite often, both in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Um, I found a really cute story of him just after he retired. He he stayed way too long, right? And he was trying to show... Some kids asked him to hit a homer for him, and he was way past his prime. This is in Nova Scotia. But he, he had to keep... He kept striking out, and the crowd was... They were with him, but he it, he kept going for like until he was like sweating and stuff, and determined to put on a show for these kids. And he did, in fact, hit a homer. But before that, he came a whole bunch of other times. There's a a really strange point in his career in 1925 when he had a, a huge slump, and there was a lot of rumors he was into substance abuse. And then he was brought out to the New Brunswick woods by a bunch of his, uh, I guess, other star ball players, and they just kind of disappeared in there. And he um, just kind of returned a lot healthier, but it was said that he was dragged out there to detox in the northern woods of New Brunswick, which is, which is something that, uh, maybe that's a tourism opportunity of sorts. <laughs> um, we had another exciting guest with Oscar Wilde, the famous author and playwright. He swung through, he did a huge tour, actually. He just hit, like, every small town all over all of the Maritimes, and it was a, a super dramatic and eventful one, depending on where he goes. He came to Fredericton first, and he was booed by the students. Um, students back then were quite conservative, it kind of flipped there. Um, so they, they heckled him from the stage, and he heckled right back in Fredericton. And he seemed to quite enjoy it, actually. He, he thought it was quite a amusing thing. And then, you know, the Fredericton-St. John rivalry. Well, St. John heard that they were make fun of him, so St. John, a distinctly more working class city, just absolutely sold out all of his shows. They had to put in more shows. And what was a, a very working class group of, I think, predominantly mechanics and shipbuilders were all going to his shows, which were, he was discussing um, the aesthetics of how to make your home beautiful on these lecture tours. And yeah, they, they explicitly said in their in their in their newspaper articles and stuff like that, that they were going just because Fredericton didn't like the Maritime. Like in the Maritimes, we don't boo and hiss people. <laughs> and then he went off to to Halifax. The governor personally toured him around in Truro. He had a, I guess he really kicked off a bit of a, a brightly colored um, flat fashion choices <laughs> with his more gir- um, exciting clothes. Um, PEI newspapers made fun of his long hair, but you know it was a just kind of an exciting. Um, you know, most people just took it in stride and were really supportive of, of him, which is pretty interesting. Um, another celebrity would be, in contrast to Oscar Wilde's really good Maritimes tour, Harry Houdini came here um, when he wasn't anyone big. He was on the cusp of giving up, actually, on his dreams of becoming a famous magician. And he did this Maritimes tour. It was his last thing. He was retiring. He was going to go, he was going to quit. He was going to take a job in a factory back home in New York. He was done, but he was going to do this one final hurrah tour. And it was a, it was a bad tour. People were not showing up. People would like lose interest and walk out, but he had all of these strange experiences during this tour where he would, he ran into an old hero of his who was all washed up and um, actually, much like Babe Ruth kind of came to detox in St. John's Ocean Air, who he taught him some new tricks. He uh, did a tourist visit to the St. John Lunatic Asylum, and he learned of a um, St. John invention called the St. John... Um, what was it called? Lunatic? Anyways, it was a straitjacket. And that became his... He adopted that into his act, and it became his whole main thing. Um, and then it became even more dramatic after he went to Halifax. His The fellow who put him on this final tour um, actually got arrested for non-payment of debts right on stage. So he decided <laughs> the show must go on. He was going to finish out the tour in Dartmouth. And as the result of, of some children in Dartmouth that he decided to recruit to promote his show, including like the local dog catcher, uh, he sold out his first ever international show. And that gave him the the desire to keep carrying on, and only only about a year later, he just exploded, like went, as we would call now, viral, and just became a global sensation whose name, we all know the name Houdini, his name's like recognized today, influenced loads of people, and all of that started right here in the Maritimes. A great St. John invention, Don, the straight jacket. I think that'll be, that'll be news for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, by the way, I was playing golf at the Digby Pines this summer, and there's a there's a plaque to for Babe Ruth on I think it's hole eleven, which he purportedly was the first person to ever drive the green, and and, and I believe it's over three hundred yards, and uh, that would have been an impressive feat back then, and uh, so he he got around the Maritimes a little bit, Andrew. We just have a couple of uh, quick uh, questions before we conclude. Uh, one of the ones that we wanted to ask you about is. Why did the Americans invade Prince Edward Island in 1775? <laughs> um, I'm not sure that the Americans even would have an answer for that. So 1775 was like right before the American Revolution. It had just broken out. Like it was in the midst of breaking out, I guess. The islanders wouldn't even have known this was going on. And then two American warships, first ever ships in their Navy, sail into Charlottetown's Harbor. And... They just kind of ransacked the place like pirates. Um, there's some really dramatic quotes of them, like literally going house to house and stealing cutlery, stealing people's curtains, stealing people's carpets. And they took along with them when they left the very miffed governor of Prince Edward Island. And they they had been on a mission that they were searching. They were trying to stop a, a fleet of weapons that were coming in. They completely failed in that, so they just sacked poor old PEI. So they brought the governor back to meet with George Washington and brag about their accomplishments. George Washington was pissed that they, because, you know, this is a bit of a public relations nightmare. You can't just go around stealing random colonies cutlery when you're trying to be, live a resistance and stuff, right? So he angered, he punished the captains of the American warships, which is interesting, and then he also released the governor of PEI. Rather than going home, the governor of PEI decided he would become a spy. He was hanging around all the American positions, documenting them, and then he went back to Halifax, reported this to the British, and then as his conflict got worse, his information became actually quite um, quite useful to the British. Real plot twist there, eh? <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, uh, as a student of the region's history, one of the things we wanted to ask you is how do you think historians of the future will characterize the time we currently are living through? Well, it's always a, it's always a tough question on how to, how to predict the future, right? But here, I'll go with the, I'll go with a controversial take for you guys. Um, we tend to put history on a pedestal. Um, we, we were mentioning all these things, like the shipbuilding times in the 1830s, we were calling it the golden age of the Maritimes, and we kind of, we're acting like, oh, we'll never get back to that level of prosperity, if people are saying, but I think people are too dramatic about how great the past was and how terrible the present is. But you know what? Here's my take for you guys. Here's my answer to that question. I think that we're entering the golden age of the Maritimes right now. I feel that we're too pessimistic about ourselves and our region, but we really shouldn't be. Economically, we've got these growth rates, we've got wage increases, we have all these new immigrants coming to our region. Um, we also have a cultural assertiveness and a newfound confidence coming from the Maritimes. Not necessarily any of these provinces individually, but together as a region. Um, or once we'd seem like we were okay with kind of being mocked. And remember what even recently Stephen Harper said about us. But now it doesn't seem, I don't think that we would stand up for that kind of thing anymore. And there's also a, a newfound self-awareness in the Maritimes and a, a thirst for more knowledge of who we are as a people and a sensation of our own culture. And I write these backyard history stories. I, I was basically just doing my thing, but the important thing about this is that people choose to read them. These are these are long-form local history pieces. These are the sort of things that are not traditionally popular. But but this isn't some top-down academic thing. This is a grassroots, ground-up effort because people are genuinely more interested in these stories about who we are as Maritimers that are told in a more distinctly patriotic and pro-Maritimes tilt to them. And this is about I think this reflects a more of a newfound knowledge for who we are as a people, for the stories of the people and the culture of the past and our stories together. So I think that after a long time being spent kind of kind of looked down or not even looked at at all by the rest of Canada, I think Maritime is just standing up a little straighter. Their hearts are swelling a bit more with pride and we are truly coming together as a united people with a strong regional sense of who we are as Maritimers and confidently walking into this golden age or the maritimes so uh, on that that's a really optimistic and impressive note to end this conversation andrew we thank you so much 
Uh, before we let you go, you do have this book coming out that you mentioned. What can you tell us what you're what you're writing on, and when when we can expect to see that book? Yeah, so the book's going to be called Backyard History: Forgotten Tales from Atlantic Canada's Past. It should be out in just a couple of weeks. I've been working on that for a while. Um, it, uh, yeah, it's basically just a compilation of the best stories from backyard history, but expanded more added to it we've got a couple new ones so it'll be exciting and you will be able to find it pretty much everywhere in just a couple weeks time so keep an eye out for that well we certainly will and we thank you for joining us today and telling us a little bit about uh, our history and giving us some interesting stories of how we've had innovative industries in the past and how we were maybe a little more focused on education in the past and certainly some of the things around tourism and immigration have been very valuable so thank you so much for joining us Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Really appreciate that. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.